Have you ever been guilty of getting ahead of God? Have you ever said to yourself, God's plan for my life is not working. I'm tired of waiting. He's not moving fast enough. His methods are slow and inefficient. It's taking far too long. The temptation in those moments in life is to take matters into our own hands to speed up the process. Pull strings, push, shove, manipulate, compromise. Do whatever it takes to get to the place that you want to be as fast as you can. Some Christians try to do God's will their way. They replace God's timetable with their own. You believe God's plan for your life is to get married and have a family. I mean, it's taking far too long. You fear for your prospects. So for a season, you ask God to step aside as you go about breaking all the wise protocols and trying to find a spouse. You believe God wants you to have that scholarship. It looks good. It'll be an incredible blessing to you. But they require a specific experience that you don't have. And you decide, the only way I will get this scholarship is if I claim I have this experience in my application. The dream promotion at work is at hand and within your reach. All you need to do is work harder, even if it is at the expense of altering all of your life's priorities. So that means no time for church, no time for personal devotions, no time for ministry, no time for even your own family. And you keep saying to yourself, it is only for a season. And your eyes are set on that promotion that you want so desperately at all costs. All these are examples of Christians trying to get ahead of God, trying to take matters into our own hands rather than waiting for His time and doing it His way. Can you relate to that? We're going to talk about doing God's will God's way as opposed to doing it our way. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are in a sermon series from the book of Exodus. And last weekend, we looked at the power of God's providence the amazing way in which God unfolds His plans. We saw how God had a destiny for Moses. God honored the faith of his parents rather than following Pharaoh's edict to kill all the male Hebrew babies. His parents, by faith, placed Moses on a basket and let him float down the Nile River. And in a remarkable chain of providence, something that God alone can orchestrate, Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe at the right location at the right time, and she is touched by this baby's cry and decides to adopt the baby. Today's text shows what happens next in Moses' life. Things take an unexpected turn. There is a sudden detour as Moses takes matters into his own hands rather than waiting on God. 
Our text for today is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 24. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 24. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Would you pray with me? Lord, we acknowledge our own temptations to take matters into our hands to get ahead of you. And today, Lord, we pray that you will teach us what it means to wait for your plans to unfold in our life. Would you personalize this message for us, no matter what our circumstances may be, so we will hear your still small voice challenging us, teaching us, and we will be drawn closer to you as a result of encountering you in a fresh new way. Well, we pray this in the powerful name our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You are maybe seated. The book of Exodus is a fast-paced narrative. The last time we saw Moses, he was still a baby, adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters. But she needs a, a nanny to help out, and Moses' mom applies for the job, ends up getting it, and she becomes a caregiver to her own son. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So how old was Moses when his mom, Jochebed, hands him back to Pharaoh's daughter. Was she still involved in his life in some way, shape, or form? Did Moses know that he was a Hebrew? How was his upbringing in the Egyptian palace? 
Why did Moses go to watch the Israelites in their hard labor? It's so many questions, and we don't have all the answers. That's, of course, if you haven't seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Because if you watch the classic 1956 movie, lucky you, you will have all the answers. You know, The Ten Commandments is a good old movie. I'll recommend you that you watch it if you haven't, especially if you have three and a half hours at your disposal. But as they always do with movies, they add a lot of drama. So don't take all that they present as gospel truths. There's a lot of conjecture and imagination involved. For instance, in the movie, they present Moses as having no idea that he was adopted. When he finds out that Jochebed was his real mother, Moses is distraught. He's in a state of shock. But I'm not so sure about that. Here's my hunch. I don't think Moses was shocked one fine day to find out that Pharaoh's daughter was not his biological mother. Moses appears to have a clear understanding of his identity. He knew who he was all along. However long he was with his mother before she gave him back to Pharaoh's daughter, he would have received a godly foundation. They must have taught him about God and seeds were planted in his life. So even though Moses was raised in the palace, he had some idea of what his people were going through. He had an inkling of God's call upon his life, that he was going to play a critical role in delivering his people from Egypt. When we are studying any Bible passage, a good practice is to look for parallel passages in the Bible. And in our case, we do have a parallel passage that offers some extra information that helps us in interpreting our text here in Exodus. And we find this in the book of Acts, where Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, gives a a long speech as he summarizes the history of Israel. And in his speech, he makes reference to Moses' story. And Stephen provides us some critical information that helps us in our understanding of Exodus. For instance, Stephen says in Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. We don't know what, what age Moses ended up in the palace, but he does have some kind of royal upbringing. He gets top-notch Egyptian education. He's presented as powerful in speech and action. So from a humble shack in Goshen, Moses goes all the way to the palace of Pharaoh himself. The best of foods, the best of training and education, the best of everything. Moses is immersed in the lifestyle and the culture of the Egyptians. Moses makes a name for himself. Extra biblical historians say Moses led the Egyptian army to a smashing victory over the Ethiopians. So Moses is a, a leader and a military strategist. He can sway the masses. He is persuasive. He articulates himself well. He oozes with charisma. This is a man who is powerful in speech and action. So that is Moses for you. And humanly speaking, if there was a person who was 
better qualified to deliver Israel from the hands of Pharaoh, there was no better choice than Moses. His resume tells you that he is the perfect man for the job. So this, with this background, we look at verse 11 of our text in Exodus 2. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Did you catch that phrase? One of his own people. That's why I said Moses knew all along about his identity. I bet this was not the first time he went down to Goshen to look at his people at work. And every time Moses saw this oppression, a deep anger welled from within. I have to do something about this. I cannot take it anymore. And that particular day, when he saw a Hebrew being mistreated, Moses couldn't bear that sight. And in a moment of unbridled rage, Moses struck the Egyptian and killed him. Strong Moses delivers one knockout blow, and it's over. Verse 12 says, the, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Pause for a moment and ask the question, what was his motivation behind this action? Why was Moses doing this? Moses was taking the matter into his own hands and assuming the role of the deliverer. He never consulted God. He never went through a process of discernment. This was an impulsive response. Moses thought that his time had arrived. Clearly, Moses was getting ahead of God. He was substituting God's timetable with his own. He was prematurely forcing his way to the place where God wanted him to be. Stephen confirms this hypothesis in Acts about the motivations behind Moses' actions. He says in Acts 7, 23 to 25, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And here's the important verse. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Moses thought that his own people will see God's great plan unfolding through him, that they will hail him as their leader. Our long-awaited deliverer has finally come. Moses thought of all the people, the Hebrews, will understand that he is their champion, that they will bow before him and ask him to lead them out of Egypt to the promised land. But much to his dismay, the Israelites say, Moses, who do you think you are? Back off. What do you know about suffering? What do you know about slavery? Being beaten and abused. You grew up in the palace. You have no idea of what we are going through and our suffering. So they rejected Moses' leadership. Verses 13 and 14 of our text back in Exodus 2. 
it reads, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? See that? That's the rejection. Like, who are you to take charge and, and exercise leadership over us? And then he says, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Moses killed that Egyptian, he thought nobody was watching. So he buried him in the sand. But Moses must have done a poor cover-up job. Maybe let the toes stick out of the sand. We don't know what he did, but whatever he did, his act was being found out. This was no longer a secret. The next day, he separates these two Hebrews who are fighting and we saw, they say, who are you to rule over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses ends up in deep trouble. Now, Pharaoh finds out that Moses is being a traitor. He's conspiring against Egypt. He's siding with the Hebrews. And Pharaoh will not tolerate any kind of rebellion. And he wanted Moses dead. And Moses' efforts had all backfired, and he had landed in one big mess. And that is true of us when we take matters into our hands, when we try to get ahead of God, when we try to force things in our life rather than waiting for God's plan to unfold, we will also fall flat on our faces. And Moses thought he was ready, that he had all that it takes to be the leader and fulfill the destiny God had for him. And that was the problem. It was too much of Moses and very little of God. And from God's point of view, Moses was far from being ready. He had too many character issues. God had to do a deep work in Moses before he could do anything through Moses. But God could never use a self-sufficient, brash, arrogant person operating in their own strength. Moses had a long way to go before he would mature and be the person God wanted him to be. And then perhaps God could use him to change the world around him. So what happens to Moses? Verse 15 of our text, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses runs away from Egypt as a fugitive. Where? Midian. The Midianites were semi-nomadic tribe. They were herders. They lived in a, a barren area in hot, arid conditions. This was the Sinai Peninsula, a sparsely populated desert region, a place with nothing but sand and rocks and very little vegetation. 
And in this place, away from the limelight, away from all the action, God was going to humble Moses and teach him lessons on dependence and trust. Through solitude and silence, the desert will impart spiritual lessons that the palace could have never taught Moses. And God was going to empty Moses of all self-sufficiency and mold and shape his character. This was God's school of hard knocks. You know, over the years, I've conversed with so many great Christian leaders. And I have seen a theme that shows up over and over and over in every single person's life. I can't think of a single godly Christian leader who didn't have this desert experience at some point in their life. You find a person of character whom God uses in a significant way, there will inevitably be a backstory of how they were prepared for their calling. Often in long seasons of anonymity, away from the spotlight, they go through challenging, difficult times in their life, and that's where they are being shaped and molded to play the role God has for them. So here's Moses, sitting by a well in Midian, reflecting on all that had just happened and how his entire world had just fallen apart. You know, in the Bible, the well is a fascinating place. It is a place of divine appointment. It is a place God reveals himself. So many God encounters in the Bible takes place by the well. And ironically, the well will be the place where God would unfold the next chapter in Moses' life by way of a divine appointment. Moses rescues the daughters of Ruel, also called Jethro, from the shepherds who were giving them a hard time. A guy like Moses, trained in Egyptian warfare and artillery, had no problem taking on a bunch of bullies, and they scurry away like schoolboys. And when Jethro finds out what had happened, he invites Moses to his house, shows him hospitality, and he sees a guy, strong, capable, caring, and he could offer a great helping hand in the family business. Jethro also concludes, I think you will make a good son-in-law and you can work for me. Want to be part of the family? See, that's how arranged marriages work. You take a good look at someone and you conclude that they will make a good spouse for your son or daughter. And the assumption is, with your years of experience, you are better equipped to make that call on behalf of your inexperienced children. Now, I'm not building a case here for arranged marriages, but I'll say this. Now that we have a daughter, this idea of arranged marriages seems very appealing to me. <laughs> so Jethro offers his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. They get married, and that will unfold 40 years of Moses' life, the next chapter in the desert. 
verses 21 and 22. It says, uh, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Isn't that powerful? And names were not given casually in Bible times. The meaning of a person's name represented something deep and powerful. And Moses named his son Gershom, meaning foreigner in a foreign land. And that is a reflection of his own story. Moses is talking about himself here. It serves as that caption for that painful period in Moses' life. Moses was that foreigner in a foreign land. He was the man without any country. He was the fugitive and the refugee who was fleeing. And a 40-year painful detour will serve to prepare Moses for what God had in the next chapter of his life. Same routines, day in and day out, for 40 years. This multi-talented, charismatic, ultra-masculine guy, mighty in speech and action, will take care of the flock, water them, climb over the rugged rocks, and walk in the desert sun every single day for 40 years. How was God doing? He was emptying Moses so he can be filled with God's presence. And all that self-confidence, self-sufficiency, pride, and an identity that was rooted on his personal achievements will all be slowly stripped away in the desert. Forty years of being anonymous. Forty years of working outside his call. 40 years of the daily grind, 40 years of gifts and talents being unutilized. And God would use these 40 years to teach lessons that will prepare Moses for the next 40 years of his life when he will become a powerful instrument in the hand of God. And through this desert experience, Moses learned some crucial lessons. Moses learned empathy. I told you before, being raised in the palace, he had no credibility to lead his suffering people. He didn't know the first thing about being a foreigner. But now, in the desert, he will learn empathy and compassion. He will learn what it means and feels to be a foreigner and a refugee. He will learn to identify with people, and more importantly, rely on God. Moses learned wilderness survival skills. After 40 years of nomadic life in the Sinai Peninsula, Moses knew the wilderness inside out. And that's why he was able to lead the Israelites through the wilderness as they went to the promised land. All those skills came in handy. I tell you, the lessons that God will teach you in the desert experiences of your life will come handy one day. And Moses learned to give God 
credit because he had been emptied of himself. He would give God all the credit for his accomplishments. No longer would Moses rely on his physical strength alone, but he will wholly rely on God's power to use him to change the lives of others. Forty years later, Moses was ready for what God had in mind for him. The passage that we are studying ends on a powerful note, verses 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four times God is mentioned as the subject in this verse. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And all along, Moses thought that God had forgotten him and forgotten his people, that it was all over. You know, in Moses' mind, he was saying, what was I thinking, trying to deliver my people from Egypt? How foolish was that? My life belongs here in the desert. God had forgotten me. And unbeknownst to Moses, God was at work. He was moving away from the sidelines, and God was taking center stage, and he was going to work in the most powerful way. The more important question was, was Moses ready for what God had for him? And we're going to find out next weekend how Moses responds to God's call. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you the temptation that we face in life is to get ahead of God. We find God's timetable to be too slow. We want to take matters into our hands so we can speed in the process, so we can have that family, that education, the career, and all of the dreams that we have in mind for our life according to our timetable. And all along, God is in no hurry. He makes us wait because he's more interested in doing something in us before he can do something through us. So in seasons of waiting, what should be our response? What is the right attitude? When we arrived in Canada, I was a full-time international student and working part-time as a night security guard at Ambrose University. One day when I was at work, I got a call from someone a student wanted help because they were not able to open their dorm room. The key was not working and they needed my assistance. And I was so new at my job, I had no experience, I didn't know what I was doing. And I tried to open that door with the key. It didn't work. So I tried turning it this way and that. It didn't work. I kept trying hard and finally I was getting so frustrated. So I used my strength, tried to force and, and twisted the key as hard as I could, and it still didn't work. 
fact, the use of force caused the key to be bent, and it went totally out of shape. So in desperation, I had to call someone with more experience to come and help. The person came, and uh, he was not pleased with the work that I had done. So he looked at that uh, bent and out of shape key, and he said, here's some advice. When you're handling a key, never use force. When you use force, you will not only damage the key, but also the door. And I think that wonderful advice applies not just to opening the door with a key, but there's a spiritual lesson there as well. Because that, to me, is a picture of how so many of us live our lives. When life doesn't go according to our plans, when doors don't open, when we are made to wait, we do everything in our power and ability to force open the door. We use all of our strength to twist and turn. We get frantic, we are desperate, and we try one key after another because we so badly want the door to open. And in those moments, you need to know forcing in your own strength will only cause more damage. So don't force the key. Let God open the door for you. For in seasons of waiting, the right response is not to struggle and strive in our own strength in desperation. The right response is to surrender, to yield, and give God the full control over all areas of our life. It is in the desert season we learn to make room for God, to do whatever He wants us to do. We learn to trade our agenda for His so the question for you today is, have you fully surrendered to God all areas of your life? Have you surrendered to God's timing? Or are you doing God's will your way, taking matters into your hands? In times of waiting, don't force it, but surrender to a God who knows what He's doing.